history has treated Billy the Kid as both a hero and villain. His name is synonymous with the Wild West, with gunslingers and barroom shootouts. Shrouded in myth and folklore, Billy the Kid is the archetypal American outlaw, living by his wits and his six-gun one day at a time. But what is the truth behind the legend? This is Billy the Kid, part three, dead or alive. It's 5 p.m. on April 28, 1881. Although he doesn't know it, the 21-year-old Billy the Kid has just a couple of months left to live. He has finally been tracked down and captured by the infamous sheriff, Pat Garrett. The outcome of Billy's trial was inevitable, and now the notorious outlaw sits on the dusty floor of an upstairs room in the Lincoln County Courthouse, awaiting his date with the noose. In a sick twist of fate, the court where Billy is spending his final days is the building which used to house Dolan's store, the so-called house that had kickstarted the Lincoln County War. Pat Garrett is well aware of Billy's slippery reputation. His wrists are clamped in heavy iron handcuffs, riveted tightly around his slim arms. His ankles are shackled, chains scraping the dust every time he moves his legs to fight off pins and needles. Deputy James Bell stands watch inside the room. The sheriff himself is out of town, buying timber to build Billy's gallows. The only other guard, a burly, murderous thug named Bob Allinger, has walked the court's other prisoners across the street to a hotel to eat. Billy has been waiting for this moment. With one last glance out the window, he climbs to his feet. Deputy Bell's hand goes to his holster, but Billy smiles and asks to go to the privy. A few minutes later, the men return. Billy is ahead of Deputy Bell as they walk back upstairs. He waits at the top, raising his hands. As the guard comes up behind him, Billy swings, smashing Bell in the side of the head with the heavy handcuffs. Bell drops to the floor, dazed, and Billy dies for his gun. There's a brief scrabble. Two gunshots ring out. As the plaster dust clears, Billy stands, watching the deputy's body slump over and slowly slide down the stairs. There's no time for remorse. Shouts spring up outside. The shots have alerted the whole town. Billy, still shackled, grabs a shotgun from Sheriff Garrett's office. He throws open a window just in time to see Deputy Bob Allinger appear from the hotel across the street. Billy has always hated Allinger. The man is a bully, a murderer, and part of the Dolan gang. As Allinger is almost beneath him, Billy leans out and cheerfully shouts, Hello, Bob, before pulling the trigger. Both barrels catch the deputy in the chest, cutting him down. He's dead before he hits the dirt. Using a pickaxe, Billy smashes the shackles from his ankles. He steps out onto the balcony to address the crowd gathering in the street below. Still brandishing the shotgun, pistol stuffed into his waistband, 
He bellows that he hadn't meant to kill anyone, but he will kill again if anyone gets in his way. Going back inside, he orders the courthouse caretaker to saddle him a horse. As Billy the Kid rides away into the evening, the townspeople can hear the sound of his youthful voice, singing, the song carrying clearly across the plains. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. This week on Real Outlaws, the hangman is ready for Billy, but will his neck end up in the noose? We'll ride through the aftermath of the Lincoln County War as Billy shoots it out with the law and rival gunslingers alike. An epic jailbreak makes him a hero to many in New Mexico territory, but it's his final confrontation with Sheriff Pat Garrett that will cement Billy the Kid's reputation as the most notorious outlaw of the Old West. Pat Garrett will famously become Billy the Kid's nemesis. But in the wake of the Battle of Lincoln, Billy, scarred by his losses, tries to live an honest life. It's two and a half years before his famous jailbreak, and not long after the bloody events in Lincoln, sparked by the murder of Billy the Kid's employer, John Tunstall, by local racketeer James Dolan. The vicious feud culminated in Lincoln's streets being soaked with the blood of many of Billy's friends, including the lawyer, Alexander McSween. It's the final straw. The President of the United States is tired of reports of rampant anarchy, corrupt officials, and vicious gunfights. To quell the lawlessness in New Mexico, the President dismisses the governor. McSween's widow petitions to have Dolan and his gang arrested for the murder of her husband but no charges are brought. The new governor of New Mexico is a Civil War general named Lew Wallace. To draw a line under events, he offers an amnesty to anyone involved in the Lincoln County feud, excluding anyone currently under indictment, and therefore Billy the Kid, who is still wanted for murder. Now, the regulators have mostly split, gone to ground to start new lives elsewhere, they urge Billy to do the same. But Billy has found a reason to stick around. Fort Sumner is a lively town, and each week, girls from the surrounding ranches drive in to the town dance. Billy cuts a gallant figure at the dances, and many of the local girls are smitten with him. But he meets a rancher's daughter there who really captures his heart. The kid, who was a charming young man, who had learned to dance and sing from his beloved late mother and could speak Spanish like a native, was very popular all through that area with many senoritas. But we do know that he was particularly taken with this young woman, Paulita Maxwell. 
her father was the creator of what became known as Maxwell Land Grant, which was a big chunk of real estate in New Mexico. And with his passing, his son, Pete, Pedro, Pete Maxwell, took the reins. And he and Paulita lived very close near Fort Sumner. And ultimately, that proved to be his undoing. Billy is optimistic about the changes in Lincoln County since the conflict. He is young, intelligent, and determined to make a decent life for himself here with his sweetheart. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. In early 1879, a year after the murder of his employer, John Tunstall, Billy the Kid rides into Lincoln carrying an olive branch for his arch enemy, James Dolan. In the center of town, Billy confronts Dolan and his cronies. They almost gun down Billy there and then, but cool heads win out and the two sign an agreement. No more killing, and neither will testify against the other should the law catch up with them. If either man breaks the agreement, he would be killed on sight. The two shake hands, and everyone celebrates the truce by drinking their own body weight in liquor. Everyone except Billy. As the drunken rabble staggers down the main street, they encounter the lawyer acting for Billy's friend, Mrs. McSween, in her case against Dolan. The gunslinging rancher is drunk. Drunk as a skunk and demands the poor lawyer dance a jig in the middle of the muddy road for all to see. Laughing, Dolan then shoots the unfortunate man dead and walks away as if nothing has happened. Billy has tried to put the violence of last year behind him. Now, he's back in town just a few hours and already implicated in a murder. Not only that, but it's a further insult to McSween's poor widow, who he's extremely fond of. Stone-cold sober, Billy rides away from Lincoln as fast as his horse can carry him and prepares to renew hostilities with Dolan. Billy sends letters to the new governor explaining the events. Dolan and his pact be damned. Billy will testify. In return, he wants a full pardon. But Billy isn't stupid. He won't turn himself in to corrupt officials. He offers instead to meet the governor personally. A plan is hastily agreed. There'll be a staged arrest with Billy taken into custody. In the ensuing court case, Billy will testify against Dolan and his buddies. He'll then be pardoned for all misdeeds. Billy agrees, stipulating the governor must send men he trusts implicitly, 
He has no fear of death if he goes down fighting, but there's no way he'll be taken in to be killed like a dog. The following day, rumors spread like wildfire. Billy the Kid has been arrested. The governor travels back to the town and is amazed at what he sees. The locals have turned out in mass to support Billy. Friends of Billy's stand outside the jail playing music and singing. It seems to the governor that most of the territory hold the young outlaw in high regard. In the ensuing trial, Billy keeps his end of the bargain. He testifies against all guilty parties. Over the course of the case, some 200 or so warrants and indictments are issued based on his testimony. Many wanted men flee, never to be seen again. Others take advantage of the amnesty to escape justice. Dolan and his goons win their freedom in their own court cases, ruled innocent, fair and square, if you can call it that. They are tried in friendly courts with corrupt judges and terrified juries. Billy's enemies get off scot-free. To add insult to injury, the district attorney, a close personal friend of Dolan, has no intention of honoring the governor's pardon for Billy. He engineers the hearings to spin a vicious tale of evil Billy the Kid, the wild teenage gunslinger. Sensing the case is not going the way he agreed, and that it's likely his own head that'll end up in a noose, once again, Billy slips away. Not for the first time, Billy has tried to do the right thing and respect the law. He realizes now that any pardon is worthless, that he'll be hounded until he's dead. It's another fork in the road on the path to infamy. He skips town, heading back to friendlier pastures. He's still a local hero in Hispanic areas, perhaps now even more so thanks to taking on the corrupt establishment. And so he sings and parties at the weekly dances in Fort Sumner into early 1880. It's January 1880, Fort Sumner, 18 months after the Battle of Lincoln. Billy the Kid is laughing with some cowboy friends, buying beers in Hargrove Saloon. It's the kind of crusty watering hole that he's gambled in for years, the kind of den in which he first killed a man. Another of the patrons propping up on the bar is a staggering drunk named Joe Texas Red Grant. He's a thug, and a loud, obnoxious one at that, with a reputation for violence. Once upon a time, Billy may have avoided this sort of boastful brute, but tonight, it's a different Billy to the kid who shot a bullying blacksmith in self-defense a few years before. Now, he's a notorious 20-year-old outlaw with friends in low places and a string of deaths under his gun belt. Texas Red Grant is shooting his mouth off, threatening to kill a man before the night is through. He even bets Billy $25 that he'll kill a man first. Working hard on getting drunker still, Grant staggers over to one of the cowboys Billy is playing cards with and draws his gun. The crowded bar holds its breath, anxious eyes closely watching the leering drunk. 
Grant slowly reaches over and takes the cowboy's handsome pearl-handled six-shooter out of its holster and replaces it with his own tired firearm. The cowboy either pretends not to notice the switch or, more likely, Grant's murderous reputation precedes him and the cowboy doesn't dare challenge him. Billy does. Friendly as you like, Billy ambles over to the drunken Grant and asks to look at the fine weapon. You see, Billy knows his friend fired off three shots on the way over to the saloon earlier that night, meaning there's only three shots left. He discreetly spins the chamber round and hands the gun back. It's later that night, and Grant is now raging drunk. He threatens everyone in earshot. He leans on a table and shouts at one of Billy's friends, swearing he's gonna kill the man. The argument escalates. Billy pushes his chair back and stands up. Silence descends on the bar, broken only by Grant's snarling breaths. His hand twitches. After a moment staring at one another, Billy turns his back on Grant and starts to walk towards the door. Behind him, there's a hiss of steel on leather, a click as a revolver's hammer is pulled back, ready to fire. Billy wonders if Grant is a coward who will shoot him in the back as he's walking away. Another click gives him his answer as Grant pulls the trigger. The hammer falls. No crack of a gunshot. No explosion. The hammer fell on an empty chamber, thanks to Billy spinning it around earlier. The silence in the stunned bar is deafening. But Billy now has the measure of Grant. Quick as a flash, Billy turns and puts three bullets straight through Grant's chin. He's dead before he hits the sawdust on the wooden floor. The first time Billy killed a man in a bar full of witnesses, he was forced to flee, condemned as an outlaw. This time, Billy is amongst friends. The other patrons breathe a sigh of relief. Witnesses claim Billy's three shots were put through Grant with such speed and accuracy that there was only one hole. Interviewed about the incident later, Billy says, It was a game of two, and uh, I got there first. Billy may feel safe in the friendly surroundings of Fort Sumner, but the fates are plotting against him. It's around this time that Billy the Kid first meets his nemesis-to-be, Pat Garrett. Garrett moved to the area a couple of years previously. An experienced, hardy buffalo hunter and trail driver, he's worked ranches from Louisiana to Texas as a hired gun against rampant cattle rustlers. Six and a half feet tall and handsome, With fine clothes and a bushy walrus mustache, he soon makes a name for himself in Lincoln County. Another good example of those from the Western frontier who walked that very thin line between the felonious and the righteous. There's some suspect that sometimes Mr. Garrett, the long lanky Garrett, even stepped across that line. 
and might have been involved in some criminal activity, although that was never proven. Garrett and Billy the Kid frequent the same watering holes of Fort Sumner, where both enjoy the weekly dances. Nearly 10 years older than the Kid, Garrett occasionally finds himself across a poker table from him, but otherwise, they stay out of each other's way. He minds his business and I mind mine, Garrett tells a friend. I don't want anything to do with him, and he knows it. And he knows he has nothing to fear from me as long as he doesn't interfere with me or my affairs. Garrett winds up keeping order at a saloon where he continues to rub shoulders with outlaws and lawmen alike. It's outside one of these saloons in the summer of 1880 that the only verified photograph of Billy is taken. Standing with his head slightly tilted, hat lopsided on his head, he is frozen in time. His left hand grips the barrel of a Winchester rifle resting on the ground. The other hovers close to a six-shooter hanging from his hip, as if daring the photographer to draw. His sweetheart, Paulita Maxwell, will later comment that it doesn't do Billy justice and that she never liked the picture. Nevertheless, it will come to represent the outlaw for decades to come. While Billy is posing on the street, Garrett is planning his future. With many of his friends suffering from cattle rustling at the hands of Billy and others, he decides to put his skills to use. Garrett runs for sheriff. Dolan, by this time a ranch owner again, backs him. In November of 1880, as Billy celebrates his 21st birthday, Garrett is elected sheriff of Lincoln County. Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett are now on a collision course. Myths have surrounded the two men for centuries, many claiming that they were close friends and drinking buddies destined to turn on one another. But in truth, it seems they were strangers whose paths would cross with fatal consequences. He had been elected in 1880, the new sheriff, the main sheriff of Lincoln County, that huge territory. And he's the one who knew the kid, but some people say they were good friends and even socialized and, and none of that's true. He certainly knew the kid and knew of him and knew of his past and his present and wanted to be a big part of his future by taking him out. Immediately after taking office, Garrett rounds up a posse to do just that. They catch up with Billy at a ranch on November 27th. The inevitable gunfight breaks out, with Garrett's men shooting out windows and splintering timber, trading fire with the outlaws. It's a deadlock. Billy is too well-armed and defended, and the new sheriff too tenacious to back down. Finally, a well-liked local blacksmith enters the house to discuss terms of surrender. Minutes later, a figure is spotted escaping from a window and is shot and killed. Billy maintains the posse opened fire because they thought it was him escaping, while the posse claim Billy himself pulled the trigger. Regardless, the blacksmith is dead. Locals are enraged. Billy's infamy grows. The event is chronicled by the local paper in a scathing story about Billy the Kid. It is the first time the outlaw's famous nickname has appeared in print, 
it won't be the last. In December 1880, the governor of New Mexico takes out an ad in the Las Vegas Gazette, the only known reward notice posted for Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid, $500 reward. I will pay $500 reward to any person or persons who will capture William Bonney, alias the Kid, and deliver him to any sheriff of New Mexico. Satisfactory proofs of identity will be required. Lou Wallace, governor of New Mexico. Sheriff Pat Garrett rides through towns and villages, turning them over in his search for the outlaw, but to no avail. He switches his thinking. If he can't dig out Billy, then the kid will come to him. He knows the outlaw's sweetheart, Paulita Maxwell, lives in Fort Sumner. He figures once the heat dies down, Billy will ride into town to see her. Garrett and his men stalk into town and capture Paulita Maxwell. She is tied and gagged, so she can't shout out to warn anyone. The sheriff's men lie in wait. They don't have to wait long. A thick fog descends on the valley. Deep snow swaddles the sound of hooves. As the riders get closer, the sheriff can see it's Billy and his friends. The men cock their rifles. Garrett steps out into the street, raising his rifle, and commands the outlaws to surrender. They decline. Gunfire erupts through the town. Billy and his friends gallop back out the way they came. One man is hit and falls from his horse. They were taken by surprise, and the kid lost a very close friend, a, a young man named Tom O'Falliard, who was killed then. And, and so they, they, meaning the kid and oh, his other remaining cohorts, made their escape, and they ended up in a dismal little spot with the attractive name of Stinking Springs. But Garrett tracked them down. Billy and his compadres are holed up inside a small stone one-room house. Garrett has his posse surround the place to wait for daybreak. As sickly rays of sunlight creep over the plains, a man in a sombrero emerges to feed the horses. Without warning, Garrett orders the posse to open fire. Seven Winchesters open up, bullets ripping the freezing winter air. As the man collapses, his hat falls. It's not Billy. The posse blast the shack with everything they've got. The rough stone walls protect Billy, and it's a stalemate again. All day long, Billy and Garrett trade taunts. Finally, late in the afternoon, it's not bullets that pry Billy out of his protective hideout, but the aroma of bacon and beans sizzling over Garrett's fire. And then they just held them at siege, and it was just a matter of time. They had no food or medicine or water or anything, so the kid and his men wisely capitulated, and they were taken into custody. Billy the Kid surrenders. He is quickly shackled and led to a nearby ranch. Coincidentally, that of his lover's family. Fate mocks him again. The next day, on Christmas Eve, Billy has a farewell kiss with Paulita Maxwell before Garrett transports him to Las Vegas, New Mexico. They arrive on Boxing Day, 1880, to huge crowds. Some cheer for Pat Garrett, 
but most clamor to see the famous outlaw. Billy swaggers whenever he's in view, and stories about him appear in newspapers as far away as his birthplace, New York City. Garrett loads the heavily shackled Billy onto a train for Santa Fe. It's from here, on New Year's Day, 1881, that Billy sends a letter to Governor Lou Wallace, the man who'd promised him a pardon. He asks to see the governor for a few moments. Unfortunately, Governor Wallace has no spare moments for Billy the Kid. And that began that long process of the kid in manacles, you know, matriculating through New Mexico territory to various places, Las Vegas, New Mexico, as a prisoner, trying to escape when he was in Santa Fe from that calaboose there, continuing to make his pleas to Lou Wallace, deaf ears, and finally ended up in southern New Mexico territory in Mesilla, where he was tried for murder and was found guilty and was sentenced to hang. Of the 50 or so men indicted for murder and other crimes during the Lincoln County War, only Billy the Kid is ever convicted. He is transported under armed guard back to Lincoln, locked by Sheriff Pat Garrett in a corner room upstairs in the old Dolan store, which has since been converted into the town's new courthouse. He was uh, being constantly guarded, of course, and they had him in, in, in manacles on his ankles, his hands. And if he needed anything, if he needed to go way out back to the privy, this uh, one old deputy bell, they would unshackle his feet and lead him down and walk him up to the privy to do his business and then bring him back. And he got to stretch his legs a bit and they brought him food. The food was supplied from right across the street from the Wartley Hotel. Over the next five days, Billy the Kid observes the guards' routines carefully. And when Pat Garrett leaves town on April 28th, he makes his move. So this one day, Pat Garrett goes off. And in fact, part of his mission to go off was to purchase some timbers to make the actual gallows that, where they would hang the kid and execute him. And Olinger was in charge. And Olinger was much like some other people that the kid had encountered, especially in his early life. He was not a very appealing man, big burly guy. And he gave the kid in particular a lot of trouble and sometimes would even taunt him with his shotgun and say, you know, if I had my way, I'd blast you to eternity right now or to hell. This particular morning, as they come back from the privy, Billy manages by hitting Bell with the, his hand chains as they're going back up the stairs to get Bell's gun and ultimately kills Bell, shoots him in the stairwell and he comes out and falls down. Then he goes back up and of course, Olinger, you know, who's probably about to put some chili in his mouth, hears that he says, you stay here. The man of the prisoners, he runs out to see what's going on and crosses the road. By this time, the kid has Olinger's famous shotgun. And on the on the end window on the second floor, the window's open to get cool air. And the kid looks down and sees Olinger coming. And he didn't hesitate when Olinger was pretty much right below him. He famously said, hello, Bob, and then let him have both barrels and instantly killed him in 
killed the last bully he would encounter. The daring escape propels Billy the Kid to stardom. Hundreds of articles and pulp stories recount his daredevil exploits and blood-curdling deeds. Some of them even have a little truth to them. He becomes a folklore figure in his own lifetime. White establishment figures denounce him as a devil, while the Hispanic population of the Southwest cheers him on as a local hero. To them, he is El Chivato, roughly translated as Billy the Little Kid Goat. All is quiet for a couple of months, but in summer 1881, it is reported that Billy is again living in the area around Fort Sumner, near Paulita Maxwell. The word is, she's pregnant, and Billy has returned to be near his unborn child. Garrett saddles up and heads out for the Maxwell farm once again to begin his inquiries. No posse this time, just him and a couple of deputies. July 14th, 1881. It's a little after 9 p.m. on a warm, clear night. Three lawmen creep silently through a peach orchard on the Maxwell farm. Garrett holds up his hand and crouches. His two deputies copy him, eyes scanning the trees. Insects chirp in the darkening sky. Soft light comes from one of the rooms, but it's impossible to see anyone inside. Garrett holds still in the shadows, watching the farmhouse. He's chosen to start inquiries here, as he knows Paulita Maxwell is home. Now, he's waiting for complete darkness before moving in. Suddenly, there's a noise at the far end of the orchard, a man speaking in Spanish. Garrett wonders who it could be out here at this time. He squints into the shadows and sees a man in a small sombrero vault the picket fence and head for the house. It's too far to make out who the visitor is, so Garrett settles in to wait. It's midnight by the time he makes a move. No lights are shining from the windows now, but a full moon hangs in the cloudless sky. The lawmen stick to the shadows as they slink toward the house. Weathered boards creak under their boots as they climb the steps to the porch. Garrett slowly opens the door and looks inside. Nothing is moving. Leaving his two deputies on guard on the porch, the sheriff creeps further along to the French doors, which he knows is Pete Maxwell's room. The door creaks slightly as Garrett pushes it. The room is pitch black. Feeling his way as his eyes adjust, he creeps forward until his leg touches the bed. Soft snoring tells him that Pete Maxwell is fast asleep. He's wondering how best to rouse the man when there's a noise in the doorway. Straining his eyes, he sees a shadow back into the room. Garrett tenses. Suddenly the figure speaks, deafeningly loud in the darkness. It's Spanish. Pete. Pete. Who are those men outside? There's no mistake in the youthful voice. 
Garrett's previous encounters with Billy the Kid flash through his mind. He has a vague idea of where the voice is coming from, but in the dark, it's impossible to be sure. The mystery man hears Garrett draw his gun and realizes someone else is in the room. Who is it? He asks, first in Spanish, then English. Who is it? Quick as a flash, Garrett spins, pulling the trigger twice. Gunshots rend the still night air, lighting up the dark room. He's about to fire again when he hears a groan. His bullets have found their mark. Boots stamp outside, screams echo through the house. Pete Maxwell is awake and hollering. He manages to light a candle. In the flickering light, Garrett can see his hunt is over. Billy the Kid lies dead in a pool of blood on the bedroom floor, one of the bullets having passed clean through his young heart. He was just 21 years old. Legends spring up about Billy the Kid immediately, that he'd killed 21 men, one for every year of his life, emphasizing both his trigger-happy bloodlust and young age. In reality, we know he killed at least four and probably took part in other killings, in gun battles or on his own, but we'll never know for sure. Another tale says he'd killed a man as a young child for insulting his mother and fled Silver City to escape justice. Another rumor with no truth to it, that he was a left-handed gunslinger, a fallacy caused by the reversal of the famous photograph of him. That he rode with Jesse James, a myth that came about after the two outlaws supposedly met in a restaurant. Allegedly, Jesse James asked Billy to join his gang. And the most enticing myth of all, that Billy was not killed by Pat Garrett on that fateful night in 1881. Instead, living to a ripe old age after the sheriff helped him fake his own death. In reality, an inquest is hastily arranged by Garrett, taking place by candlelight in Pete Maxwell's bedroom. The jury rules the killing as justifiable homicide, and the body of Billy the Kid is taken to a nearby carpenter's shop. There, he is laid on a bench to be cleaned up, with one of Pete Maxwell's shirts acting as a shroud. The following afternoon, a somber procession makes its way to the nearby cemetery at Fort Sumner and to a freshly dug grave next to two of his compadres. Garrett was also very self-serving. Within a year of killing the kid, he uh, hired a ghostwriter and the two of them came up with this book about Billy the Kid, which really was meant to shine the spotlight on Sheriff Garrett. And because a lot of people, especially those who, of course, were fond of the kid and supportive of the kid, thought of Garrett as a murderer in the manner that he took the kid's life. In 1904, the grave marker is washed away when the Pecos River bursts its banks. In 1931, a cemetery tour guide raises funds for a stone marker, which stands to this day in an otherwise little-changed county. 
If Billy were to come back to Lincoln today and be set down on the streets of Lincoln, he would know exactly where he is because the only thing that's changed is it's no longer a dirt street, it's paved. Interest in the kid has only swelled over the years, first with countless dime store novels full of daring jailbreaks and bloodthirsty deeds, then songs, movies, and TV shows. Billy has been portrayed as both a ruthless killer and dashing hero. The truth, as always, lies somewhere in between. The way it worked on the western frontier of the United States in the latter part of the 19th century was very simple. And here's how I would put it. There were some white hats and there were black hats, but a large number of hats were gray, a little bit of both. And many people who are presented as white-headed people actually wore gray hats, including from the black hat section, Billy the Kid. Billy's hat was gray, and I feel it was a lighter gray than many, many others. A killer, certainly, but only an outlaw thanks to the sides he picked. His crimes were certainly no worse than many of those charged with upholding the law. He remains an underdog hero to many, in particular, the Hispanic population of the Southwest and the residents of New Mexico. So ultimately, in Pete Maxwell's bedroom, past the witching hour after Garrett gunned down in the darkness and the kid fell with a question on his lips, Kianis, who is it? He never knew who killed him. The question went unanswered and he fell dead on the floor. But it was actually Henry McCarty lying dead on the floor. And the endless ride of Billy the Kid began. Next time on Real Outlaws, we go down under to Southern Australia in the year 1870. The young British colony of Victoria struggles to maintain control of a desperate and destitute population. A population born of exiles and ex-cons, where undesirables are persecuted by colonial authorities. It's a hard place that produces hard men, and they don't come any harder than Ned Kelly. That's next time on Real Outlaws. If you're enjoying Noiser podcasts and would like to hear them without adverts, join Noiser Plus today. As well as ad-free listening to Noiser originals, including Real Outlaws, Real Dictators, Short History Of, and History Daily, You'll get bonus content and early access to new episodes. Start your free trial today with Noiser Plus.